Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is Lassie Lamert, who actually has been on before. I recommend checking out his prior episode. It's very interesting, and he was a great guest, and he talks about some stuff that really nobody else has ever talked about. So I suggest you go back in time all the way back to episode number 68 and check it out. But first, listen to this. If you don't know who Lassie is, you should just know he's a world-class musician, engineer, and producer who has worked with bands such as Ailstorm, Abigail Williams, and many, many more. And I think that he's one of the, I guess I would call him, leading heavy guitar tone experts in the world. Here goes. Enjoy. Lassie Lamert, welcome back to the URM podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Last time you were on, I believe, was 2016. Ages ago, huh? Or 17, and a lot's happened since then. Yeah. So I figured we may as well catch up. You've done a lot of stuff since then. One thing I wanted to ask you about, not as a plug for your plugin, but more because I know you as a tone hunter. That's kind of how I've always known you, is a person that creates tones from scratch every time, basically goes fucking insane to get the best tone Possible. Literally, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. And uh, and you get amazing tones. And so did making a guitar plug-in kind of break your brain at all? Or was there a logical reason for it? Both, really. Um, there was a logical reason for it. And it broke my brain in the process. Because um, we had the, the tone hub thing, which I have presets for. And I'm still using that all the time. But those presets and tone hub are kind of like Kemper. So you get the full chain recorded and people can use it and it's mix ready and it's great. And you can tweak it after the fact. You've got like a virtual mic position modeling kind of thing and you can move the mic and tweak the knobs on the amp. And the amp inside Tone Hub is modeled after the actual amp from the preset too. So if, if, if I've got like a 5150 preset, for example, on the 
trace amp, that's the core amp and tone hub, is modeled after the 5150 uh, as well. So, and then it captures the entire chain like a camper would. But unlike the camper, with a camper you've got the treble, mid and bass, the tone knobs, they're just like at some certain spot and you can't fine tweak them. Yeah, they just stop working. <laughs> yeah, and it's really not like the actual amp, is it? No, I don't think it was intended to be, but yeah, I think I think the Kemper, I look at it like a snapshot of a tone. And then if you start moving the parameters too much, I don't know, sometimes you could get something cool, but if you think that the knobs are going to react the way that the knobs on the amp do, you're just wrong. All you have is one point in time, one guitar going through one set of knobs set a certain way through certain cabin mic, that situation, that's it. Exactly. And with tone up with the tracer amp, it's a bit closer to the actual amp. So the, the tone knobs react kind of like the amp would, but it's an it's still a bit of an approximation because obviously I just captured the, the entire chain, very much like a camper profile. And that's inside the box then. And, and then you can tweak the stuff. But with... The tonality, that's entirely different. I really wanted to have what I have in the studio. I wanted to have that in the box and build everything from scratch. I mean, obviously, there are presets that people can use, but I wanted my amps and my cabinets and my mics as like a raw base material that I can then use to uh, sculpt tones from or anyone else, really. And we went into ridiculous detail with the modeling. Uh, I sent the, the amps to to Italy and they took them apart and measured them on component level like every single resistor and every single capacitor was measured and then recreated in the digital domain and so that's spot on my amps with all the little kinks and all the little uh, unique things that they might have like for example the driftboard is essentially the first production model or before a production model really. When Marek from Driftwood created the amp, he sent me some prototypes and we sent them back and forth and I kind of helped voicing it and we tweaked it a little bit. And the Driftwood, Driftwood I have is the first, like the first final model. And back then, for example, uh, the supplier for the output transformers was still a bit different. So mine is a tiny bit different from, from most other Driftwoods. And that's also captured in the plugin. So that's amazing and then we went into ridiculous detail again with the cabinet modeling or capturing of irs actually and what we did there is i didn't want usually you've got like a couple of irs and then the in-between positions are just approximations they are just well any cue making it a bit darker when you go like towards the edge or something or or it's between two captured irs you get like a blended sound and i wanted the pretty much every position to be the actual position and so we took or i captured 9600 irs for the plugin ridiculous amount of of irs and that would never have been possible like with a manual mic placement obviously so we used the dyna mount i guess everyone knows by now what it is the robot mic mount it's, it's you put a mic on it and and it's controlled via software the wizard behind the stl plugins uh, federico he he programmed a software just for just for this purpose you put it into the center position the reference position and then you can assign the furthest position and and most left and most right position you put into the software the amount of captures you want per distance essentially so you've got like the close position for example closest to the grill cloth uh from the very left to the very right and you can well if you want do thousand 
different IRs there. And same for the angles and same for the steps back from the mic. And the software and this method they already used for Amphub, which was like the, I don't want to say predecessor because that's not true, but my tonality plugin is, is based on the Amphub architecture uh, rather than the, the other older tonality stuff. So we used the same software, but I was so anal again that I think in, in the two, three, four, whatever amount of weeks it took me to capture those IRs, I had him change the software like seven times and make little adjustments and little tweaks. And I thought he was going to hate me, but it turns out he kind of appreciated me being so meticulous about it. Yeah, you know, I think that people who have a high standard for things appreciate working with other people who have a high standard for things as well. Yeah, I guess. As long as their feedback is reasonable. It can get quite annoying, I guess, but uh, yeah, well, in the end, we all have the same goal. It has to be perfect. I didn't want to release it if it's not perfect. I captured four of my cabinets, two, two speakers each, because every speaker sounds different, even in the same cabinet. And I've got my favorite speakers for different stuff. So I wanted to capture those all. So that's eight speakers. And then I used my favorite mics for, for those speakers. So five mics, eight speakers. And well, that then turned out to be 9,600 IRs just to capture all the positions, all the angles, all the distances and everything. And that's that's kind of how it turned out then. Just uh, my cabinets, my mics and my amps. And I was absolutely stoked the first time I, I got the plugin. I got, got to try it out, the beta version, the first one they sent me. It was literally like I just had a remote user interface for my actual amp in the other room. So it felt and sounded like it. Did you ever expect there to be a day where that would happen? No, absolutely not. <laughs> it's really, really I'm, I'm blown away. I, I know. The, the thing that's interesting to me, it's interesting to me how many people I know that are amp purists who in the past year or two changed their mind because the technology has just gotten better. Yeah, exactly. I think there's still a place for amps and caps and mics, and there always will be, and it's a great thing, and I still love miking amps, don't get me wrong. Yeah, of course. I think it's very much like with uh, vinyl, for example. Like Today, usually vinyl doesn't sound better than high-quality digital, because you've got limited bandwidth, you've got uh, less dynamic range. Still, people enjoy listening to, to vinyl and say it sounds better. But what really is better about vinyl is you actually take the, the thing in your hand and you put it on another thing, and you sit down and you... You listen through it. There's a psychological component to it. Yes, and I think that just makes you listen in a different way compared to having like a Spotify playlist with 2,000 songs and uh, just skipping one after the other. So you listen differently. And I think that's the same thing with hardware and with amps. You just use them in, in a different way, I guess, because you you have this heavy amp in front of you and you just turn knobs and things happen and it just... Uh, there's some sort of feedback you get from that, I think. And same is true for hardware in mixing, compressors and EQs and stuff. And often I think I can't hear a difference. Sometimes it's very obvious. It really depends on the plugin and the hardware and everything. But again, I think the most important difference is actually being able to grab the knobs and just uh, performing mixing, really, rather than, well, programming mixing. I also think that physical gear breaks and degrades you have to maintain it, and there's no guarantees that tomorrow it's going to sound the way that it did today. And by capturing it the way that you did, at the very least, if nothing else, you've committed that gear to history, basically, in that condition. And I'm really quite happy and proud that we got to work with the official, like, this is the, the only, the first, and will remain the only official Driftwood plugin. Driftwood worked with us together with that, uh, on that, and so... 
to have that like officially that's the only driftwood thing that's amazing and same with uh, the hot mod I've, I've been using the the old soldano hot mod f- for ages that's a little well the the old marshals have like three 12x7 tubes and each tube got two system gain stages in there essentially so what this soldano hot mod does is you take one of those dual triodes out and put tube it's a different tube with three gain stages in and there's another like a little bit uh, where there's like the circuitry and everything so you essentially get like a modded marshall without modding it so you just take one tube out put the other tube in and soldano they used to build it in i guess in the 90s and they discontinued it and i I always loved it and uh, bought a couple used whenever i could find them and they're getting really pricey like 400 bucks or something and now a company called legendary tones uh, makes them again so there's a reissue by Legendary Tones, and it's the f- official reissue. And it's also called Hot Mod, and they've tweaked it again, and uh, there's a switch for a bit more or less gain, a bit more or less bass. David, the guy he, who builds them, sent me a couple, and I tried them, and I, I loved them. And they replaced my old Soldano ones, actually. So when we modeled my uh, 81, it is, an 81 800 2203, I wanted that hot mod in there, so I contacted Dave from Legendary Tones if, if we can use it and make it official, and luckily he agreed, so this is an, an official Legendary Tones hot mod V2 inside the Marshall now that can be switched in and out. It's amazing. Do you feel like having this now has changed your efficiency, your workflow at all when you're actually working? Yeah, absolutely. Does it make the tone hunt easier? Well, not necessarily because it gives me more options because I still have the uh, all the amps and caps and mics and I'm still miking. Options can be a problem. Yeah, definitely. But it definitely makes the recording process easier because uh, it interrupts creativity less. If you've got the musician sitting here and, and recording a rhythm guitar and then uh, he comes to the lead part and he thinks, oh, damn, I want to retry that solo again or whatever, I can just switch to the other sound without interrupting the flow and he just retracts it and then we're back to the rhythm sound. And with hardware amps, I don't really like to do that because you never get the same sound again if you move mics and stuff. Uh, plus it takes a ton of time. Yeah, it's over forever. Yeah, that's why I like reamping because you, you could still kind of do it if you had like a camper tone or whatever and then you reamped later. But now I'm so close to the final sound or it even is the final sound if I'm using the plugin which I'm often doing now, actually, because uh, the band often gets used to it. They, they love it during, during tracking, and then they say, well, uh, let's just keep it. All right, so you feel like you're close to the final tone, if not the final tone during tracking. That's something that always weirded me out about the way that I learned metal production was to sit there for days and get a guitar tone, days, sometimes 10 days, knowing full well that you're going to reamp later. I love reamping. I love having the options, and... It's a good thing, and it saved a couple of sessions for everyone, I guess. But that's exactly the thing. Um, like, what's the point of that? There's something to be said for the connection between guitarist and, and, and the tone or the gear, especially for stuff like palm mutes and pinch harmonics. You play differently. You kind of yes. you get the immediate feedback from the amp or even from the software, from the camp or whatever, but from the sound you're playing. You play into the tone. Exactly. It's a give and take and an instant feedback thing you get. So I definitely try to, to get the perfect tone during recording and then keep it if possible often it's not possible for several reasons but then at least i've got a tone and a mod of distortion and everything that is so extremely close to where i want to be anyway so that the interaction between guitarist and tone is, is still kind of working so it's not like a guitarist trying to 
do massive pinch harmonic and then he's playing like through a clean amp and just does bling and sounds garbage. Yeah. But it really depends on the way I'm tracking. For example, what I like to do is when we're double tracking or quad tracking, I usually use two amps or caps or whatever, two different tones like most people do. Often it's easier to not let the guitars play the entire song one side and then the other side. But once he's like zoned in on, on, on that riff or just the chorus or the verse or whatever, and he plays it perfectly, it makes sense to just do the double as well. And so I just have to have him play it over and over and over again until I've got all the takes I need. And then obviously it's all been tracked with the same tone. So I've got a reamp two of those, or I want to reamp two of those to get diff different tones, for example. Often that gives a better result than having him play the entire song or her and then change the amp and then play the entire song again and it's going to be different then unless you're looking for variation i think that there's some production styles where they want that difference on the two sides i think that unless that's a specific artistic thing that you want you're going to get way better results doing it like you just said, part by part, section by section. Exactly. So I'm trying to get best of both worlds. I try to get the main sound, like my core sound, perfect, record all guitars with that, and then just reamp the doubles to, well, like with a different sound. So that's kind of what I like to do. Yep, makes sense. I mean, even if you have Evertune, the way that they will play it 10 minutes later is going to be a little bit different, you know, because when somebody is tracking a riff and then doing takes and then getting into it or maybe playing it to a click over and over and over and over and like really finding the pocket of that riff. If they have to then wait until they're done with the entire song to come back, they're going to have to find that pocket all over again. And there's no telling if they're going to find it the way that they did. Like even if it's a little bit different, it's not the same. Exactly. And there's other advantages. For example, I'm, I'm just mixing a band. I'm not sure I can tell you this, but it's, uh, they've got a ton of tracks, a ton of dwarfs singing, uh, a ton of orchestration, a ton of everything really. It's just, I don't know, 200 plus tracks of orchestra and metal. And so I have to start somewhere with a mix. And I don't want to say lead guitars aren't important, but obviously the rhythm guitars are much more important for the overall sound because they fill up so much space, just the frequency wise. So when I start mixing, I before I've got like a basic sound going with that many tracks with orchestras and, and everything, it doesn't make sense for me to reamp the lead guitars already. For me, it's much easier to have the core going with drums, bass, rhythm guitars, orchestra and, and vocals and whatever is, is in there and then find a lead guitar that works. So what I usually do in order to get that core mix great is I use the plugin for the leads first because then I can still go back all the time and just tweak a bit more highs, a bit more lows, a bit more distortions, uh, mids only or whatever. And that makes it easier for me to to get the basic elements rocking and vibing first. And the lead guitars are still always changing, possibly, because, well, they have to make room sometimes or they have to fit in another space now that I've brought all the strings in or whatever. So that's where the plugin is really, really useful. I mean, lead guitars just aren't a core element as important as they are. They just aren't. Um, lead guitarists don't like to hear that, but it's true. Um, especially solos. But <laughs> I was about to say, sorry, lead guitar players. And it's not because I'm a guitarist, but rhythm guitars are just... I mean, look at a rhythm guitar track on an analyzer. It's really it's a massive chunk of frequency. It's just eating up so much space. So rhythm guitars combined with bass, kick, snare... That really makes the sound of the record for me. Also think about not just how much of the frequency spectrum it takes up, but look at it on, if you measure it 
against time, the amount of time that you're hearing rhythm guitar compared to a lead guitar is vastly disproportionate. I mean, rhythm, you're hearing maybe 90% of the time. Yeah, usually at least, I guess. That's why I usually like to have the rhythm guitars perfect when I start mixing and then just mix around all that and just bring everything together and remain... Like or keep some options open for the lead guitars to fit them in. That's why I use, just use, use this plugin, and I'm so happy with the possibilities really there to carve out space and then find another space for the lead guitars. And if I uh, if I wouldn't have had that option, if I just had reamped already, I would have painted myself in a corner. I would have either have had to reamp again everything, or adjust the entire mix around that because the lead guitars disappeared or they were too prominent or whatever. It's just much easier this way. Yeah, there there's some guesswork involved with reamping, you know. Yeah, especially if if you've got such an insane amount of tracks and stuff that needs to work together. Yeah, at least when I was doing it, the reamping was never in time with the music, so it's not like you could play it and listen to it. I don't know if if you fix that with yours. While you're reamping, not. There's still a little bit of lag. That's what I'm saying. So, like, there's guesswork involved. You have to imagine that it's going to work. Hope that it's going to work. Yeah, I usually just um, take a section of the song, like a chorus or a verse or something, and then reamp all the guitars and, and check it out and compare amps and stuff. And But yeah, that's that's the difficult thing, really. If the band's sitting next to you while you're reamping, which they often like to do because they like playing with amps, and this is like a kid's toy land here, um, they like to try all the amps and then they sit back and listen to not just the guitars but the guitars very loud in the mix and it's not quite in time and every other minute someone like jumps up oh this is not in time and oh this sounds bad because it doesn't fit the whatever like uh, kick drums so this whole process is, is it can be quite tedious really <laughs> and that kind of takes some of that away well, yeah, I mean, being able to do things instantaneously is amazing. Yeah, you hear the difference immediately. Just they save it as another preset or whatever and just flick through them and just see what works best in the mix so much quicker. Interesting that you say this because you don't strike me as like one of those preset type of guys. Oh, yeah, no. I meant uh, I created a preset for this very project then. And then I created a second or a third just so I can switch between them really quick and compare them. Oh, it makes sense. I, I never really start from a preset or from a template, which I should do because it saves a ton of time. And I know people like to do it and they're very, well, it's very effective and it works for them. It just, it doesn't work for me really. Well, I think that there's different types of, of templates, first of all, and different types of presets. So I think that there's this idea on the internet when people say templates, that they think that someone pull, opens up a session where everything is pre-dialed, everything, and they just put the tracks in and voila, it's a mix. Most of the people I know who are badass and use templates, that's not the kind of templates they use. Every mixer, I don't care who it is, does lots of the same things every single time, whether it's routing or the way that they, the way they set up their tracks or... They have some go-to EQs that they just know they like, that they're going to try that first on lots of different things. Like most mixers I know who are pretty great have a lot of things like that figured out that they just do the same every time. There's a lot of things that they don't do the same every time, but there's some basic setup that's just the same every time. Kind of the same as if like you're starting a writing session or you're starting a guitar tracking session, you're going to need, the, well, if you're using amps, you're going to need right? The amp and the DI or multiple mics and the DI. So you just pull up a template that has that already and you don't need to set the groups and just hit the red button and record. For me, that's uh, 
vocal effects, I think. Um, I've got like my go-to vocal effects that I usually start with, uh, a couple of delays and reverbs and stuff. That's always changing, but I kind of use the one I used last as a template and, and load those in. I tried that with routing, but it just kind of, I felt it, I, I didn't feel like I have the freedom to, to just... Uh, do what's best for the mix with that because I've, I've figured out that with like this one mix for example i had routed everything into everything i had side chain side chained this from that and side chained that from this and and that that went to do in a group track and into a sub mix and into, into buses so i'd like a couple of snare tracks for example bust into snare bus bust into drums and parallel drums and that side chain to whatever for the entire thing it was very very complex that's extreme yeah and then the next mix I had everything go straight to the uh, to the stereo output, like not a single group, not a single bus, and it was totally different music, and it worked. But I like to have that freedom to to just uh, do something entirely different. So that's why I'm not liking templates for routing and for track setup and all that sort of stuff. But still, you did identify something that you kind of start. So I think uh, that's why I was saying it's there's different types out there, and I do think that it's different for everybody. And what's most important is that people find what works best for them. Whatever allows the mixer to do their best work should be the thing that they do. So if templates fuck them up, don't use them. If they make you work better, use them. But I think I, I don't know a single person though, who doesn't have at least one thing that they kind of have a way that they start almost every time. So you just said vocal vocal effects there you go yeah vocal effects is for me so there's your template vocal effects routing yeah true yeah right i think for me it's often um i get this i get like on a cla kick and then i i'm like a sponge and i try to find every little bit of information i can get on what's cla doing how is he doing it or any sneep or whoever and so then i the next mix of the next two or three i mix like him i don't want to say i'm getting the same sound or anything at all but I'm using the same routing, the same kind of uh, parallel tracks or whatever, the same kind of tricks they're doing. Same with, for example, uh, when I watch a native mix kind of thing, and there's there's one of these guys doing all the buses and, and auxes and everything. I try that on the next project and get a mix done. So on the project after that, I might be on that CLA kick, for example. And the weird thing is that I'm not trying to mimic the sound, obviously. I'm just, I'm just trying the routing the way of working is there something for me i can use yeah that's how it's meant to be consumed by the way that's what everyone should do i think is uh just use it in your project and what works for you might might stick and you might use it again and modify it and make it yours and what i noticed uh, during those experiments are like mix the cla cla way mix the sneep way mix the bogren way whatever I still end up with, I don't want to say my signature sound, but people say my signature sound. They still say it sounds like a Lasse Laman mix. And I'm like... It's still you. Yeah, but I did everything different. Like, I purposely don't use the same plugins. I don't use the same amps. Different mics. But if I get a new plugin, I, I, my goal is to use that plugin on the next mix. Pretty much exclusively, or as much as I can get away with anyway. It still ends up sounding... I don't want to say the same, but it still ends up sounding like me. I'm not sure yet if, if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I guess it's just your ears don't change. The way that somebody hears music, nobody else can ever really understand that. We can understand how people approach solving problems or how they process things, um, how they work on things, but we will never be able to understand how they're actually hearing and interpreting and feeling music. Like we're never going to be able to understand what they're hearing in their head 
like what, what their actual big picture for the mix is, like any of that, their artistic vision for it, there's no way on earth you could ever understand that. And there's no way on earth you could ever have a perspective on audio besides your own. So no matter what tools you use, it's still going to be through your perspective, no matter what. Yeah. And your, ta your, your taste doesn't change, or at least not that quickly. Not quickly. So you're, you're still trying to get into the same kind of thing, the same tones you like. I'm not saying I'm trying to put my thing on or over the band's idea. I'm, just, I'm obviously trying to, to uh, get the band sound, and that's part of why I'm not using templates, because I want to approach everything from scratch. I want to give the band their sound and do what's best for their song, uh, rather than doing something I've done before just because it worked there. But in the end, you're still, you're the one turning your knobs, and if it's something, something sounds too dull for you, you, you crank the treble. And if you like, uh, well, trebly sounds, you're probably going to do that more often than not. So you're still tweaking with your taste and you still end up somewhere in the same kind of ballpark. Yeah, actually developing your tastes and your hearing takes a long time. I, I equate it to getting good at an instrument or building muscles at the gym, like that type of thing where over time and consistency, you will see results. But in the short term, You're not going to see results from one month to the next, generally. Definitely not from one day to the next. Plus, it's much harder to see, I think, because with uh, building muscles, you actually, you've got your body composition measurements or... Yeah, you have some metrics. Yeah, same even if you learn an instrument, you, you can play something that, that you weren't able to play before. Yes. And with mixing, or rather with hearing in general, it's so hard to quantify that, really. Early 90s, my, my brother had a CD player and he said, well, CD sounds so much better than cassette. I had my old cassette tapes because I was fucking eight years old or 10 or whatever. So I, I said I didn't hear a difference. And I, I really did not hear a difference between the stupid cassette tape and the pristine sounding CD. Uh, now I obviously hear a clear difference, but that's, that's an example that I sometimes like to remind myself of because uh, so often like the, you're supposed to mix for the band And the band wants to communicate their ideas and their vision about the sound. But it's still your duty to hear all those little details because you can't expect them to, to do that. Because you've developed this ear as a mixer um, that they might not have. They just, maybe they just say, well, it's not dirty enough. And, and they can't even put their finger on, on what they mean by that. Which is okay. Yeah, that's per it's perfectly fine. That's my job to kind of interpret that and do the right thing. But that, I think, comes from not having that developed ear, really. They just know, okay, this is not working for me, and they can't say why. Yeah, you know, what's, what's funny is talking about this topic of people not being able to identify technically what it is that they're hearing. The most important thing, though, is they are able to identify whether they like it or not. And as an engineer or producer mixer, that, that should be your biggest indicator of everything. Do they like it or do they not like it? It doesn't matter if they understand what they're hearing or not. They understand if they like it or they dislike it. Um, I remember on the internet for a while, there were lots of people in groups and forums talking shit about musicians not understanding what they were doing, like having suggestions but not understanding the proper technical terms for them, you know, make it sound like it's in space. And then the joke would be like, well, huh, then it would be silent. That's not even, that's not what they meant. But what I think is funny about that is you shouldn't get mad at the musician for that. They're asking you to do your job. Your job 
is to interpret that and use your technical skills to make it sound a certain way. Their job is to write the music and play the music and be the band. Uh, you know, if they were the engineer, they'd be engineering it too. Uh, so getting mad about that is stupid because it's part of the job description, I think, to figure out how to interpret what it is that people mean by that. You, you're supposed to have a more developed ear. And you're supposed to have more developed tastes and you're supposed to be a musical interpreter. And it's important to get your ego in check as well when it comes to that, because in the end, it's their music and they ask you to produce it or record it or mix it or whatever. And it's it's your job to give them their music on CD later or on whatever medium. And obviously you're an artist too, as a mix engineer or producer. So you've got your stamp on it and obviously should take pride in that and put your own taste into that because that's why they come to to you. Um, but in the end, it's it's their art. So it's very difficult, I think, to, and I see that in myself sometimes, you feel like the art, the, the when you get the mix revisions, the revision lists, you feel like, okay, you're, you're destroying the mix. So and you have to kind of tell yourself it's still their music. So and they have to walk out happy with it later. So it's your duty to give them what they want, but obviously try to not ruin the mix. Because if, 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 you, if you think, okay, if you do that, and usually it's that this louder, that louder, that louder, that louder thing, it ruins everything. So you could either just do that, make it louder, because they said it should be louder, and you ruin the mix, and no one is happy because they're still not going to like it because louder is not going to solve it. Or what we talked about earlier is it's your job to, to figure out why do they want it to be louder? Does it really have to be louder or is it a problem in the arrangement, for example? Everything is playing the same thing in the same... Uh, or a similar range, and that's why you can't hear it. Do you have to clean up there? So it's your job to find out what to do to make them happy, even if it's not exactly what they say you should do. They say you raise the lead guitars. When they tell you what to do, they're not really telling you what to do. They're telling you why they don't like it. And it's important to know the difference between them telling you why they don't like something. So they're saying that needs to be louder. What they're saying is, I don't like how I'm hearing this right now. Yeah. So and you have to figure out why is that? Is it the arrangement or is the frequencies clashing? And so you untangle that whole thing, tweak it, and then they said, now it's louder. I love it. What they meant is more audible, but yeah, they said louder. So, but still, it's, it's, it's your job to make them happy in the end. And I think that's very difficult sometimes to not be, well, almost offended by revisions. Because uh, you spend so much time on the music then that you kind of think it's your own baby. And it, and it kind of is to a degree. But you're an artist too and you put your stamp on it and you made it your own at least a little bit. But in the end, you have to give it back to them and have to make them happy. And that's, that's quite a difficult compromise sometimes. Well, it's unnatural, right? It's unnatural to just be cool with mix revisions. I think every single mixer I've ever known has at some point in their career gotten annoyed or pissed or furious about mixed notes. But the thing is that it's typically earlier in their careers and then they learn to deal with it. And then they learn, they make themselves grow up, basically. You just, it's the most natural thing in the world to get the mixed notes back and be like, fuck you, you're wrong. That's, I think that that's the most natural thing. You have to, you have to, force yourself to grow up a little bit and uh, chill out and 
think of the bigger picture. And I think after you've done it for a while and you've, you've been through that enough, there could come a point where mixed revisions no longer piss you off. Um, but I think that it's the natural state for most people when they're first experiencing that to have a, you know, a reaction to it. And it's fine to disagree. Um, and it's fine to tell them. So I think, but well, if, if, if I disagree with mixed revision, I tell them why I think that's wrong. And while I tell them making this louder won't solve it because you just end up making that louder, that louder, that louder. There's stuff clashing, mute the lead guitars. You don't need the lead guitars in this bit. There's already fucking hurdy-gurdy. And so I try to explain to them why I think it's a bad idea to, to do that. But in the end, it's their call. It's not like, I'm not going to say, no, I'm not doing that, fuck you. <laughs> I was working with a band that, yeah, the previous album was uh, mixed by a very famous producer and mix engineer. And so he sent the first mix back and half the tracks were missing. And so, well, where are the tracks? Yeah, they sounded shit. I just muted them. That's it. <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> or another band, again, working with a famous producer this time, not from that Scandinavian country, but from the other one. Um... They got the song back and all the triplets and the drums came out as dotted notes then. Oh. So it just changed the rhythm for everything. I said, well, I like it this way. Deal with it. So like, yeah, well, that's not our song. But yeah, <laughs> fuck it. It's a fine line because there are some cases where the mixer made the right call by muting some things where they just said, fuck it. I'm going to take this risk because I believe that this stuff shouldn't be here. I'm trying to help the band. And then the band liked it and agreed. But then there's other times where it backfires miserably. So it's a, it's a fine line. You should at least uh, try to explain why you think it's better. Yeah, at least give them two versions. And if they disagree, if they say, no, this is our thing, we want it in there, you have to do it. You have to keep it in there, I think, because it's their music. I agree. I think that bands respect it if you have an opinion, but that doesn't mean they have to agree with you. You know, and I think that there's always a place for you to be able to make your suggestions where, you know, if you get a, an arrangement with a ton of extra things in them, in the arrangement that cloud the mix that are pointless and you send them one mix with one without and you say, look, I think this is better. It's just clearer. It's better for this and this and this reason. And they say, sorry, we just don't agree with you. That's it. That's life. Yeah. I think the problem is that they know what's in there and they want to hear it. So they reference to whatever CD they love and they say, this is perfect. But with this CD, with ours now, I know there's this little flute line there or this little hi-hat diddly thing and I can't hear it. So this is not perfect. What they don't see is that this perfect CD that they're referencing to all the time has got the same thing. The drummer of that perfect CD also complained that he can't hear this one right hit in the middle of the chorus or that, uh, don't know, whatever, like a uh, lead guitar has got a weird sounding pinch harmonic or whatever. The thing is, you you know all the ingredients. You bring the ingredients as, as an artist. So you know what's in there and you want to hear it all. And what you're referencing all to is you just hear the result. You don't know the ingredients. So it's, it's a very unfair comparison, really. Um, and that's sometimes something that's quite difficult to explain to the band that, well, this is better even if you don't hear the little flute line because it's fucking with the vocals and the vocals are very important there. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast and you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. 
URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. You bring up a very good point about referencing other people's music. Usually the argument producers make when a band will reference somebody else's music is they'll say something like, you know, you're comparing this to a $200,000 recording that took six months and you have a week it's unrealistic, but I've never thought that that's a good comparison to use because then you make the band think, well, so it's financial reasons. Like, I don't think that that's a good approach. I think what you just said, though, is the best approach is that you actually don't know what went into this. You weren't there. You actually don't know how the band feels about it. You don't know if this is what they wanted, what they didn't want, if they're if they feel about it the way you feel about yours. You have no idea. You just hear it as an outsider and you're never going to be able to hear your own music as an outsider though that is hard a hard thing for people to understand it's the idea that if you're in a band you're never going to be able to see your own band play live you're never going to know what you actually sound like to an audience member yeah absolutely and that, I think that is even more a problem or more the case rather with the younger unexperienced or inexperienced uh, bands the more inexperienced they are the less they have this bit of professional distance to the to the to the album they are producing or recording, and I think a band that's been around the block and toured a lot and released a lot of albums albums kind of have learned how, how that how that works and how that there's only so much space on the sonic canvas and you can't have a house and a boat and a set of clouds and a tree and and a dog and everything massive in the middle of the picture it just doesn't work. It goes away a bit with the more experienced the bands are. It, it kind of it's still there sometimes, but it kind of goes away because uh, with a very inexperienced young band, you, especially the first time in the studio, 
it's so exciting for them like for us and that we often forget that because we work in a studio every fucking day and it's often boring and it's very normal and for them it's not so they it's the first time in the studio and they took time of their work or school or whatever and took a lot of money in their hands and come here and then they're told well you can't play your own guitar because it sounds shit also he's playing your bass tracks because he's better at it and we only need one rhythm guitar uh, <laughs> guitarist playing it for example whatever uh, by the way, your kicks suck, we're going to replace them. And obviously that's very frustrating, and especially to for a young man. They think they're going to sound like Machine Head, and then the producer tells them, well, half of your stuff is shit, um, maybe in less direct words, but essentially that's what happens, yeah. So that's very frustrating for them, obviously. And, then, and on your third or fourth album, you kind of know the the drill you kind of know that well if i want machine head tied rhythm guitars i have to use it or i have to do it like machine head are doing it and it's one guitarist playing the rhythm guitars period if i want the bass to lock in with the guitars like it does on that nevermore record do it like they did on that recording and i'm not saying there aren't quite often actually times where you don't have to do that or where you're going for a different kind of sound but it's so difficult if you if you reference to something and then insist that you're not using the same methods like i want to sound the drums to sound like fear factory but no samples no triggers <laughs> happens all the time but <laughs> yeah well all right then <laughs> yeah okay so i think that um there's a big difference between getting a mix revision right and getting getting a note that might be the wrong technical suggestion but is still an indicator that they don't like the direction it's going or they don't like it i think that's very different than a band having completely unrealistic expectations at the same time that you do have to learn to interpret what someone is looking for if what they want is just not possible the way that they want to do things it's also your job to let them know it's a tough conversation, though, because um, not very many people who aren't very experienced are really going to believe you when you say, when you tell them those things, that you have to do it a different way, that you got to do it this way. I, I think that, that it's a small number of people who will have that first studio experience and basically get told that half their stuff is shit and that they have to do things a certain way and who will say, okay, we're new here. Uh, tell us how to do it. There's some. Every time I'm doing that, I I feel bad because uh, this is a Simpsons episode where this Willy guy just and and then they do the slow mo thing where they say, well, this is exactly the moment his heart breaks, and he's going, <laughs> and that's kind of kind of what happens too, and I, I hate doing that, but they pay me money, and f for them it's like, especially if it's a young man or just uh, students or whatever, it's it's a lot of money. It can be a lot of money. And they want a good good result for it. And my job is to give them the best possible results. So I tell them about the methods we have to use to to get there. And if that means hurting some feelings in the in the process, um, sometimes that might be necessary. And in the end, they walk out happy. Uh, it's, it's much better than them spending a lot of money walking out with something they hate. Because then you're the arsehole and they're unhappy. So. Yeah. The worst thing is 
when people start saying um, about a band or a producer, he's a really nice guy or uh, they're really nice guys, like immediately, you know, they think the band or the producer sucks. And the last thing you want is for them to be like, what did you think of the recording? What did you think of your experience there? Well, he's a really nice guy because you know that they say that. So yeah, so you didn't offend anybody and uh, you let them get their way with everything, but they're not happy with how it came out. They think you suck. Yeah, exactly. And the feedback I often get and I'm very happy about is when a band leaves the studio and says, well, this song is better now than it was before, or I'm a better musician now and uh, I know what to work on and yep. I'm much better now than I was before. Just because they, don't know, you pointed out things to them, like the way they palm you is weird or inconsistent and all this little nagging you do during, during the recording that they usually never heard because they are just in the rehearsal space, uh, massive volume, never double tracking themselves. And so they never really heard those little inconsistencies in the palm meetings and how one is ringing out longer than the other and the next one has got a little buzz on it. And so during the process of recording, all those little tiny things you point out all the time, um, if you do it right and if you convey and com communicate that properly and they take it to heart and uh, work on it and they walk out saying I learned something and I'm better now and this made the song better well, that's my job done then well part of the job anyway how, how often have you experienced it where somebody comes to the studio and you really have to coach the shit out of them but they're just not quite ready like you're able to make it work but it's a rough experience for them And then they come back a year or two later and they're way better. Like they took the lessons from that experience as a wake up call and got serious about their instrument and come back and are actually better. That happens very often with um, lead guitarists that come, come here and the first thing they do is just sweep across the fretboard and just play crazy leads and crazy solos. And then it's time to track rhythm guitars and like, well, you suck, kind of, uh, at rhythm guitars. And those people have got so much, have put so much work in their guitar playing and learned and, and, and practiced so much to get all those lead chops down that it's very frustrating yet motivating for them to see oh, there's a whole other word of guitar that I'm just in, inadequate yet. I can see that happening because they already work really hard, right? So they already have the work ethic. They already are serious about their instrument. They just neglected something important. Yeah, and I guess it happens with uh, very inexperienced young guys too. It's just the difficult thing there is um, once I start working, I totally f forget about how much they're paying me. Um, so it doesn't matter if, if it's like the biggest band in the world with a massive budget or some local band uh, without a budget at all. So if I take the job and, and I'm doing it, it's, it's always 100%. So I always have the same goal to make make it the best possible and if it's the local band and it's the first thing and they're just they've just been playing guitar for half a year or drums or whatever i still have the same goal and the same drive to make it perfect it's just it's just more work and it might be a bit, a bit less satisfying in the end because i might not get there but i still want to give everything and get the best possible result, obviously. It's very rare for me to have experienced a situation where someone came in not ready and then came back ready a year or two later. I, it's happened a few th times, but most of my experiences, someone comes in 
not up for the challenge and then isn't in music two years later. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's that's more often the case. That's more often what I've seen. Every once in a while, though, I will get people or have gotten people where it almost traumatized them a little bit how unprepared they were because they thought they were prepared. I'm not talking about the type that's super lazy who just fucks around and then comes to the studio and sucks. I'm talking about the type that thinks they're ready for the studio, comes to the studio and they're not ready. And it's a shock to their system because they totally thought they were. I've seen that type basically, like I said, get traumatized enough to really put in a lot of work, but it's super rare. That's the ideal, but I don't think it's happening often either. Because if, if they, they think they're ready, it's not easy to admit that they aren't. It's much easier to say uh, the producer sucked or the engineer sucked and that's why it sounds shit. Yeah. That's why I never listen to a band when they say they had a bad experience um, with a producer, unless it's multiple bands saying the same thing. Or I know the producer and I know that what they're saying is uh, accurate because I've been around them or something. The same is true the other way around for bands. That guy's complicated, that guy's a diva. And well, let's see how it works in the studio. And maybe he's a diva, but maybe he's not. Maybe it's just his life persona and he's the kindest, sweetest guy in the in the studio then. How do you go about establishing a rapport with bands when you first meet them? Like, how do you get comfortable around them or get them comfortable around you? Same way I did it with girls. Uh, I'm not really doing anything because I've, I've always been rather shy and I always let the girl walk up to, walk up to me and, uh, and talk to me and then I just improvise and I'm good at improvising then. And it's the same with a band. I'm, I've, I've never done this very, this very in-your-face kind of promoting myself, going to a band. I'm a producer. When are you going to record your next record and who's going to do it? It's me. Uh, I've never done that. I just can't do that. So I just sit around and sometimes people walk up to me and, and talk to me and then I answer them. <laughs> but that's actually a, a difficult thing too. So often I've heard that I'm very arrogant and that's exactly where that comes from. So I'm just sitting backstage, uh, some festival, working or whatever, and I just don't like to annoy people. So you're being quiet because you don't want to be rude, but they think you're being arrogant. Exactly. So I'm arrogant now. Exactly. So it happens all the time. So he's just sitting there arrogant. He's just not talking to anyone. I think in the US we call that resting bitch face. <laughs> that's that's my, well, yeah, describes quite well, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had situations where you didn't even talk to somebody, but they decided you were arrogant just because you were being quiet. Yeah, all the time. Especially, especially backstage. <laughs> Happened to me too. Yeah, and I really just don't want to be rude. Like, sometimes it's weird. Sometimes you don't even know people know you. So you see some dude backstage uh, that, don't know, that's in some band or something. And you just don't want to be that guy. Like, hey, uh, I'm so-and-so, and what are you doing, and how are you doing? And so I just don't say anything. And sometimes they w walk up to me, and, they, and it turns out they know me already and know who I am. And I'm like, why? <laughs> I just don't want to assume that I'm interesting enough for them to interrupt the meal for, for example, if it's backstage or whatever. I think that that's good backstage etiquette to stay out of people's way. That's what I learned, at least. Yeah. Still, it happens all the time that you just talk to people because you're there with, with a band you know or people you know and things ease up later and you're having a drink or whatever and just people talk and I'm not shy in that way that I then sit around and don't talk like I'm, I'm I like to talk to people and I like to communicate and everything I just don't like to walk up to people and uh, 
promote myself. So I've, I've never done that. You know, when people say that networking is very important, which I do think it is, I mean, you need to have a strong network of friends and contacts in order to have a career in music. Uh, you know, like things won't happen without that. You won't get backstage without that. You won't be in the situation where you'll even be able to have someone come up to talk to you if you haven't built some sort of a network. However, where people get it wrong is that networking and building that doesn't have to involve annoying the shit out of people and walking up to everybody and selling yourself. So that that's where a lot of people get it wrong. I think that the way that it's done is just by hanging out with people and letting relationships uh develop organically and being patient exactly yeah. being very very patient that's exactly what i was just going to say just have them develop develop organically and uh it takes time but it's much more rewarding really and and much more lasting too like those relationships that just develop over time are they still exist in two years after covid on the next nam so you might not have seen the guy for like three years but he's still going to say hey wow good to see you again and talk about amps or whatever It's, it's different in, in Europe compared to USA when it comes to, to marketing in general. This very bold, in-your-face uh, telemarketer kind of thing just doesn't work at all here. I'm not sure it works for everyone in the USA, I'm not saying that, but I'd see it much more from over there uh, to this the best, you have to have this. And, and as soon as someone tells me this is the best and you have to work with me, and nah, fuck, no, I'm not interested. Uh, and I think that's very European, especially very German German way. If, if, if you try to sell your services, I'm not interested. If I want something, I'm, I'm asking around, I'm, I'm looking, I'm getting recommendations. But if you come to me, I assume you're not, you're not really good because else you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to come to me. You would just be there and wait until I come to you. And that's kind of how it works here. I mean, that's kind of what I've always understood too about, you know, if you want to get signed, the best way to do it is to build your band up to the point where labels hear about you and then approach you. Um, if you're approaching labels, I mean, there's some exceptions, of course, but if you're approaching labels, by and large, they're going to ignore you. By and large, same as if you're approaching managers, by and large, they're going to ignore you. Now, obviously, there's a difference between, like, say, a huge band fires their manager and everyone in the industry knows that this band is now on the market and they're approaching managers That's a different scenario than an unknown band approaching managers. Um, it, when you're ready, it, this is something that the adults always used to tell me when I was an impatient uh, kid, that when you're ready, these things are, will present themselves. And I always thought to myself, that's bullshit. You're just saying that. Um, how can they just present themselves? Like, I don't believe in that kind of shit. Uh, like, I don't believe in fate and that kind of stuff. Like, I don't believe everything happens for a reason or any of that stuff. Like, I don't think that stuff is just going to present itself magically because the universe is a nice place and it wants me to succeed. But what they meant was when you're ready, meaning you've built something that's attractive to those kinds of people where those types of people will find it valuable. There's a way in this industry that word gets around. If you actually build something worthy of their attention they will find out about it if it's not worthy of their attention they're not going to end of the story yeah and obviously you have to deliver and, and and do good work and everything but that's that's a given yeah like you said it just develops organically and 
you end up in a place that you you might be shocked about. Uh, like, I just mixed Dave Ellison's new band. Pretty fucking cool. This is amazing. But yeah. <laughs> the way the way things like that happen is organically, really. It's not like you contact Dave Ellison or something. So I just worked with another band, and and Mike Heller just uh, happened to be the drummer in that band. Mike Heller's drummer for uh, Fear Factory, Raven, Malignancy, and everything. I've known that guy for a long time. Oh, he's a great guy. So he's quite happy with with my my work then and then he had another couple of projects that he was never so happy with uh the drum mixes on the other stuff he did or other mixes did for him and he loved what i did so he just wanted me to mix essentially every project he was involved with and that happened then to be a lot of very very cool projects with very cool people and then all of a sudden Dave Elfson is playing bass on that project and he insists on me mixing it. So I do a test mix. Dave Elfson is stoked. I mix the record. And just that's just one example. There's so many stuff like that where you, if you would have told me that like 10 or 20 years ago, like 20 years ago I was at Wacken Festival in front of the stage uh, being like, wow, those are superstars. And now you sit and talk with the same guys and and you realize that it's just uh, it happens organically. It just develops. And I don't think you would get to the place if you're promoting yourself too aggressively. They see through it. And, and the much better way is to just make it happen one step after the other and convince with quality. And uh, not only with quality, I think equally important is be a person that that's fun to be around or that is fun to work with. Because especially in the studio where you work three weeks on a project recording or longer or whatever if you're not fun to be around it doesn't matter if you've got the best snare sound in the world the band's not going to like working with you again absolutely so yeah and i'm not not trying to say that you have to make them happy or bend and twist and uh, pretend you're someone you're not if they're going to see through it but there's normal interaction with people even if it's people that you considered to be superstars or that actually are superstars if they work with you they see you as an equal and if you treat them like a this godlike superstar all the time i don't think they expect you to deliver quality work because you probably aren't if, if you're still always doing the wait word thing i'm not worthy i'm not worthy they're going to agree with you yeah how can they trust you that you're actually professional delivering good work so if that means telling I don't know, someone like Dev Ellison, uh, 16-bit in GarageBand isn't going to cut it. Well, so be it, because that's what he wants to hear. He wants the best quality. And, and if that means I tell him, it's just an example now, could, anyone will work. But I'll tell him, this is wrong, or this is, try this, or there's a bum note, or whatever. And you have to forget or ignore the fact that this is this superstar that you used to admire for the last fucking 30 years. Because at that moment, it's not. At that moment, he's... Well, she is just a musician you're working with. It's funny you say that. I just landed for one of the companies, the biggest thing I've ever landed for us. It's major. And it came through a contact that I've had for 15 years where, you know, we've worked on some stuff and then not worked on some stuff and had a few failed ideas. And then, and then this happened. And I watched said person that we're going to work with, uh, earlier um earlier work related to what we're going to do with them and it's all terrible going back through their whole history it's all terrible and i mean this person's amazing but specifically what we do educational stuff it's all terrible the worst my thoughts are that whoever um was working with him was afraid 
of him was afraid to say that's not good enough or afraid they were afraid of his persona. They were probably worshiping him and didn't do the job. For me, the one of the most important things is it doesn't matter who you're working with, if they're working with you, especially if they are at a higher level. They got to that higher level by having higher standards. So for some reason, whatever reason that may be, they believe that you fit into that idea of theirs of higher standards. So quit worshiping them and deliver those higher standards. Exactly. Especially in that in that field that you are good in. Like if you're a recording engineer and you just know about interfaces and sample rates and what microphone to use for his home recordings or her violin. That's why they work with you. They don't know that. They are just the best best violin player or the, the best singer or whatever, but they still don't know what mic to use. And it's your fucking job to get the best possible results. So tell them, sorry, but you set it up wrong again. It's clipping again. You have to do it again. So and you're going to think you annoy them and you maybe do because you just... Well, she just thought they delivered the best possible take and then now they have to do it again because it's fucking clipping. But yeah, it's clipping, so fucking do it again, tell them. And make them do it again and and they're going to be happy in the end because it's not going to sound like shit. And if you just said, well, this is the best thing I've ever heard because you admire them and it sounds like shit later, well, you're not going to get another job from them. The unhappiness that you save in that moment of being scared to say something is going to come back tenfold later when they're pissed off with the result. They're going to, if they're happy with the result, they're going to forget that you annoyed them to redo that thing. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, nobody thinks about that stuff. It has to be a really bad experience. Like, say that the result is really good on a record, comes out great, and there was some stress making it, like there always is. Most of that shit gets forgotten. It has to be really, really bad. If the result is good... The stress has to be amazingly bad for that to be an issue in the future. I mean, sometimes you hear about bands that went to a producer, the record went platinum or multi-platinum, and then they refused to go back because they thought that working with that producer was psychological torture. And they would—they don't care how successful it is, they're never going to go back ever again. But... It's got to be on that level, I think. If, you, if you're successful, I don't just mean record sales, successful artistically too with the record, you deliver what they want. Unless it's like torture to work with you, they'll probably forget that and go back to you. Probably. Yeah, don't make it torture to work with you. But uh, <laughs> Don't make it torture to work with you. But it's, it's easy to uh, not be a total cunt and just be, be anal, be meticulous about things. They appreciate it and make them do it again and again and again if necessary. Well, you know, the, those types that I've heard about who do, who are like psychological torture artists, you know, I've talked to a few of them on the podcast. They are fucking assholes. Like when I, uh, I'm not going to say who on here, but like when I spoke to them on the podcast, I was like, oh, okay. I, I believe the bands now. Uh, yeah. I, I couldn't imagine being locked up with you for a month or two. That would be horrible. But it's it's really only like three or four people that you hear that about. Yeah, and it's usually ego that gets in the way then. Yeah, and usually not that many people put out platinum records, right? Like there's not that many producers capable of creating platinum records. And then out of the ones who do, it's very few who are not really cool people because How do you get to that level without being cool with people? So one last thing I want to talk about is uh, 
your synesthesia. I know we talked about it last time. Um, for people who are not familiar, basically it's a condition where you see sounds as colors. Like I don't want to retread what we spoke about, but it's such an interesting condition that considering that it's been a few years, I'm just wondering if it has changed at all or like you've developed new workflows as a result of it or it's just kind of stayed the same or what? I haven't really thought about it that much, to be honest, because um, when I grew up, it was always very normal for me that Thursday was green, dark green. And I thought it was the same for everyone, really. And not necessarily green, but for me, it was very self-explanatory that everyone had colors for the weekdays. I was quite, I don't want to say old, but older when, when I actually learned that it's not the case and it's not normal and other people don't see Thursday as green or even any color. That's the same with music for me. It's just so normal for me that I don't really think about it. So I'm not doing it consciously at all, most of the time anyway. It's very much the same, like when, when you have an end result for a mix or sound you want to go through. It's just a different different kind of putting that into words or thoughts. Like you, you know where you want to go with that. And for me, that's in colors. So I know this is kind of like a dark blue purplish mix or I wanted a bit more brown grayish, which for me would kind of mean more like grainy sound a bit drier and so that's just could easily be used as cinnamon synonyms so instead of saying uh make the guitars a bit drier and a bit grainier a bit less saturated i could just say make them less dark blue purple and a bit more gray sounding so it's it's uh not for me anyway it's not so special because i've been doing it all the time like that. And that hasn't really changed at all, but I'm just not thinking about it much. It's just how you think. Yeah. Still think it's really cool. <laughs> it's really weird, maybe. But <laughs> this was popular on the internet for like four days last year. I don't even know it was an actual study or not. You know how things are on the internet these days. Like somebody will say something and then it'll get on the news and... Everyone's an expert. Yeah, everyone's an expert or somebody will give an opinion and the news will push the opinion as though it's like a fact and nobody knows anything. So I'm going to say that this got popular on the internet for like four days. It sounded like it was a study. And I'm, I'm just saying this to protect myself from people who will be like, it wasn't a study. It was just some article. The idea though, that some people don't make images in their mind when they have thoughts, that there are people who don't see anything when they're thinking things. And this blew people's minds. Psychopath. Psychopath. Yeah, I, I know. Might might be might be possible. Might be true. I, uh, yeah, but I just can't imagine. It's I one can't of those imagine things, it either. Like you can't imagine it. Like how do you convey how you hear music? Same thing. Like uh, is is my red my strawberry the same red as your red or what you call red? Maybe is the same as I see green. That kind of thought. Like I I can't look in into your head and and you can't look into mine, and so it's very very difficult to think to imagine how how that would be because even even if you want to imagine that even just to the process of imagining that you're imagining something involves those fucking pictures that they don't have so you're already using tools and methods that they don't have so it's it's, it's just a different language you can't do it it's like thinking about the fourth or fifth dimension <laughs> it's weird though Interesting. <laughs> I feel like they're lying. It must be. I just can't understand it. I can understand synesthesia. How do you read a book? Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. How do you read a book? And they, and they were explaining that. They're, it was something about how uh, they do have thoughts, 
but they just don't see things. I just, I don't understand how you read a book or how do you even daydream? Like, I just, I don't get it, but apparently they're fully functional people. I think they're lying. Yeah, absolutely. Probably lying. All right. Well, La Silamert, thank you very much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure catching up with you. It's been my pleasure. And yeah, good luck with uh, the plugin and everything else. Fucking fantastic. Always fun talking to you. Likewise. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at URM Audio at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition... Do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. And use the subject line, answer me, al. All right, then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.